So I am the first one up for the summer. Uh, Dr. Mills is using this summer to prepare for uh, his study in the fall that he'll be starting um, on how to interpret and read the book of Revelation. And uh, that's good stuff right there because uh, there's about 4,000 different ways people think you can do that. So, uh, so we'll find out where Dr. Mills stands on that, right? So uh, nobody laughed. Come on now. Ha, ha, ha. That is true. That is very true. Absolutely. Which uh, tonight we're not discussing Revelation. However, what we're going to do is we're going to start a three-week series on finding Jesus. I stole this straight from the, the backstop, the backdrop of it at least, straight from CNN. I stole the title of it from CNN. Right? That means they're good for something, Right? It's the most political I'll ever get from a pulpit, I promise you, okay? Um, but uh, they did a series uh, on finding Jesus. They called it Faith, Fact, and Forgery. Um, I'm, I'm not so sure about the forgery part, obviously, uh, but uh, it, it looked at Jesus from a historical standpoint, and uh, that becomes popular usually around Easter time. You see stuff on TV, you see specials and so forth. Folks write books on that about finding the historical Jesus, and, and you know, there's nothing wrong with looking at Jesus from a historical standpoint and, and, uh, and, and understanding the culture he lived in and those types of things. Um, right now, there's a book out called The Forgotten Jesus by uh, Robbie Gallaty that I'm actually reading right now uh, just for fun. And uh, um, y'all hear that, teenagers? You can read for fun. Yes, it's good for you, right? Um, and uh, it talks about uh, finding the Eastern Jesus and the fact that ultimately when you read Scripture, you ought to read it through the eyes of understanding that we, we serve an Eastern rabbi. And uh, so you can't forget the Old Testament. Uh, I, I get that idea because in reality, it's a lot easier to preach from the New Testament, right? All those letters that Paul wrote are, are for the church, right? So it makes sense. I mean, and if you're a preacher at a place where you got to get things fixed and get things straight, man, there's some good stuff in the New Testament to share with your congregation to, to, to do church the right way, like the Bible says, instead of like 100 years of tradition says, right? So it's easy to preach that stuff. You can get on your soapboxes and all kinds of stuff. But what we've got to realize and understand is that ultimately when it comes to finding Jesus, uh, we can search for Jesus in all the books, we can search for Jesus in all the historical documents and everything else. But one of the first places we ought to really look to search for Jesus is the Bible, Right, And so we're going to spend these next three weeks looking at who Jesus is uh, from the view of three of the titles that he has in Scripture. And what we'll find is starting tonight is that at the end of the day, one of the best places to start when it comes to searching for Jesus is not just the Bible, but actually the Old Testament. The Gospels continually reference back to the Old Testament and prophecies that point to Jesus. And when we use words like son of David and son of man in particular, we have to understand that with that comes this massive, heavy burden of understanding that, listen, that is what the people of that day were looking for in the Messiah, in the Christ. Uh, Matthew gets this and he understands it. That's why Matthew uses the phrase uh, that Scripture would be fulfilled more than anybody else in the New Testament. Because his whole point there, when you look at his, 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 his gospel, was to get the point across that those things that were prophesied about in the Old Testament, they were fulfilled through Jesus and through the works of Jesus. 
And so what we're going to do today is we're going to start this, this three-week series of finding Jesus by understanding and recognizing that Jesus first we see tonight is the Son of David. Now next week we'll talk about the Son of Man, and then the following week we'll talk about the Son of God. Uh, we're going to try to stick very strictly to the Son of David tonight, um, and uh, we did that in the 4 o'clock uh, hour, so I'm going to try to do it again tonight, just so we don't steal any thunder from the next couple of weeks. Uh, but what we're going to find is, is that when you look at the son of David, and Jesus being the son of David, Matthew probably gives us the best understanding of that, and he does it from the very beginning of the gospel of Matthew. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, there's a really powerful verse that most people just skip over when they're reading the book of Matthew. It's the first verse. It's not very long, and it says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that sounds like it's just the beginning of a line of genealogy that's listed for Jesus, which it is. Uh, from verse 1 through verse 17, Matthew lists for us the genealogy of Jesus. Um, and uh, he, he does so and breaks it down in a unique way. He goes 14 uh, generations um, from, uh, from uh, Abraham uh, to David, and then 14 from David to Babylon, and then 14 from that to Jesus, right? Uh, you can go over to Luke. You can find another genealogy of Jesus. They are a little bit different. Uh, there's some legitimate potential reasons for their difference. Uh, some scholars tell us that it's likely that Matthew was giving us the genealogy through Joseph. Other scholars tell us or, and that, that Luke was giving us the genealogy through Mary. There are other scholars that say that uh, Matthew was actually breaking this down into what you would call um, uh, a, a, a chosen uh, genealogy uh, or a selected genealogy. Uh, he, uses the, the, he uses 14 generations in one group, 14 in the next, and 14 in the next. I'm not real smart on this, but something about words back in the Hebrew and letters and numbers, and you add them all up, you get 14, and that's the word David. Got it? All right? Somebody that's smarter than me can explain that to me one day, but that's what they've told me from a hermeneutics professor this semester, so I'll believe him because he got hired at Southwestern. So, okay, does that work? Right? Um, and uh, so, yes, so that's what they tell us. So anyways, uh, this genealogy, though, uh, you, 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 nobody likes reading genealogies in the Bible. Because how do you teach on them? How do you preach on them? Well, the first verse here gives us something we can really unpack tonight. Because in this first verse, what we see is the fact that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Which, by the way, it starts with saying the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So let's start there for just a second. All right? Christ. What's that mean? Messiah. Where's that come from? It's the word anointed. Right? Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the one that everyone was looking towards, the one that everyone was looking to come. Immediately, Matthew says, this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. And then he starts by explaining how he is this. And he starts with saying that he is the son of Abraham and the son of David. I want to submit to you tonight this very simple fact. And that is, is that if Jesus is going to be my hope for salvation, and if Jesus is going to be my hope for eternal life, then we must come to the conclusion that he is also the son of David. Because if he's not, then he can't be that which fulfills my hope for eternal life and eternal salvation. To understand this, we're going to see, first of all, the genealogy of the son of David. The genealogy of the son of David. It says there in verse 1 that he is the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. What's that tell us about Jesus? That tells us that Jesus is of the people of God. 
He is of the people of the covenant. Jesus is part of the covenant people. It also reminds us of the promise that was given to Abraham by God. That it is of the seed and the lineage of Abraham that all the peoples of the world will be what? Blessed. Right? And so we see immediately that he is the son of Abraham. But then we also see that he is the son of David. What does his earthly lineage for the son of David mean? Well, it means, number one, that he had a rightful spot with the throne. Now, what's interesting is whether you go through Matthew's genealogy or whether you go through um, Luke's genealogy, you, you all get back to David, right? And then you get back to Abraham. And so at the end of the, the day, whichever one of uh, those tracks you want to trace, you get Jesus going back to David. And we know that Jesus is called the son of David nine times alone in the book of Matthew. Now, what's interesting about this is that Matthew understood the significance of the Old Testament. That's for all those folks out there that say the Old Testament doesn't matter, right? I'll say that again. Matthew understood the significance of the Old Testament. If you don't get anything else through these next three weeks, you'll get the Old Testament matters. If the Old Testament doesn't matter, we don't have anything to base our hope on, okay? All right, this week we'll look at Matthew and, the, and, and how he points back to Psalms and a bunch of other prophets. Next week we'll t be talking about Daniel and how that Daniel points to Jesus as well with the Son of Man and how the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title to call himself. All right? So here's what we're going to do, though. What we're going to see is that, that, that Matthew understands the importance of calling Jesus the Son of David. He does it uh, nine times. Eight of those times that he does it, you, you don't see it recorded in any of the other Gospels. It's, it's unparalleled. You don't see a, a reference to that uh, calling Jesus the Son of David. You say, why would Matthew do that? Well, remember, Matthew was the guy that said all the time so that Scripture may be fulfilled. Jesus has the right to the throne of David. How do we know that? We know that because in Psalm chapter 132, verse 11 through verse 12, that we are told that David's son would sit on the throne and reign forever. Uh, we even can look over to Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, and uh, it says this, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Notice two key words in there, a ruler and a shepherd. Well, who is a ruler and a shepherd? David, right? David. And so we're, again, pointing back to David. Even in Luke chapter 1, verse 32 through verse 33, we know that the angel declared that Jesus would sit on the throne of his father David forever. David's sons in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 through 8, are promised to reign not only over Israel, but over all the nations. So by Jesus being linked from a lineage standpoint back to David, as a son of David, we immediately can go to the promise of David and the fact that David was promised that his sons would rule, that his sons would reign not, over, over, not only over Israel, but over all the nations. Now, if you're living during this period of time, things are looking bleak for this promise, aren't they? Because it's been hundreds of years since David's sons ruled. On the throne. You know, that's what's cool about where we live today. It really is. Right? Because what we forget when we read the scripture, whether it's, like, think about this for just a second. I mean, you want to talk about faith. People have struggles with faith today. Let's go back to Abraham for just a second. <laughs> what part of the Bible had been made known to him yet? Yeah, what he was told, right? 
that's it. I mean, we're so blessed today that as we read about Jesus being the son of David, this isn't some pie-in-the-sky stuff. This isn't us connecting some magical dot somewhere to go, oh, here's how it all makes sense. No, listen, this is the fact that we have thousands of years worth of Scripture in front of us, and we're so blessed to be in a place that we're not having in many cases. Now, there's some stuff that hadn't come to fruition yet, and I get that. But for the most part in Scripture, most of the Scripture we've seen happen. We've seen it. It's been revealed already. And the same is true with being able to see that Jesus is the son of David. But the people at that time may have missed it because they had the Old Testament. That's all they had. And then they had some guys who got real impatient because, Jesus, or because God hadn't shown up through some prophets in a while, so they wrote some stuff on their own. That's all they had. That was it. Right? But here we are reading and we see what Matthew writes and we're immediately able to go back to the promises that were made to David. So we see the genealogy of the son of David. But the second thing I want you to see we're going to talk about tonight, this is where we're going to spend most of our time, is the typology of the son of David. Now typology is a big seminary word and I hate using seminary words uh, when I'm preaching um, because I'm not trying to make myself sound smart. um, But I do want you to understand what this word means and here's why. Because for a long time in my life, um, I, I, I recognize that a lot of the prophecies in the New Testament, or a lot of times in the New Testament, when a prophecy was mentioned, you know, like you have those little marks in your Bible, you're reading Scripture, and like the words be in italics, and so you, you see a little footnote, and it says, go back to this verse. You know what I'm talking about? And so you flip back in your Bible to the Old Testament. If you read just that verse a lot of times, especially in references to Jesus that were about David, you're like, whoa, well, well, how does that have anything to do with Jesus? That was about David out in the wilderness somewhere thinking he's about to get killed by the enemy and he's calling out to God. How does that have anything to do with Jesus? Like, I mean, if you're not careful, that's what you'll find yourself doing. And so then in your mind, you'll go, so are we connecting dots in the sky? Is that what we're doing? But this, this, this term typology, this, this, this idea here of, of what I'm about to explain will help us to understand some of this a little better, okay? Number one. We know the promises that were made to Abraham. We know the promises that were made to David, right? Okay? Some prophecies that that we see in the Bible are very direct, right? It's like, here's what's going to happen. Like Daniel gets told about Antiochus Epiphanes, right? And the abomination of desolation. If you don't know what that is, go back and read Daniel. I don't have time to explain all that tonight. And it's real clear if you like look like once it happens, like you're able to look back in history and go, oh, that's pretty obvious. That's what Daniel was talking about. Time frame fits, everything that happens fits. That's pretty direct. However, you ever heard a preacher preach on that and then say, but he's also talking about the Antichrist? And you're like, how? I don't get it. Right? Well, here's how, okay? Here's how. It's this typology thing. In the Bible, all over the place, there are shadows that are revealed to us of events and of people that point to something that's going to come later. And for it to be what's called typology, it means there must be a type, which is that first shadow, and there must be an anti-type, which is that bigger thing that has to be greater that happens later. Does that make sense? So in other words, the direct prophecy from Daniel about Antiochus Epiphanes was Antiochus Epiphanes. But guess what Antiochus Epiphanes is? He is a shadow of the Antichrist that will come that will have his own abomination to desolations, right? 
Does that make sense? All right? So in other words, David, with all of these prophecies, we find very quickly when we start looking at them that David is the shadow, and the sons of David are the shadow that point to Jesus. Now let's think about this for just a second. All right? What is a shadow? A shadow, if I were to go stand out there in the sun, right? I don't know why I'm walking toward the sun. Y'all can hear me back here. But if I were to go stand out there in the sun, uh, there's a, yeah, there is. There's a shadow right There's my shadow right This is cool. Lights weren't on during 4 o'clock, so I didn't have one, right? So there's a shadow. You can kind of make out there's something on my face, maybe sunglasses, maybe glasses. This works so much better. Thank you, right? You can tell there's some hair. Like you can tell it looks like I'm... A man, that's what, yeah, like, I got a collar. Like, you, does that make sense? I'm getting an outline. Is it completely clear? I shouldn't say it. I won't say it. Isn't this so much better than the shadow? <laughs> You're supposed to say amen. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Mary. Miss Mary said it has more detail in the shadow. That's a good answer. Yes. <laughs> a shadow gives us a picture but when the real thing comes it's so much more clear it's it's so much easier to recognize and it's so much not in my case but better right does that make sense that's what typology is And if you don't really understand the way the Bible works with a lot of that, especially from the Old Testament to the New Testament, prophecy can be really confusing. It can get you really discouraged and confused and frustrated. So with that in mind, we're going to see how it is that David and the sons of David are fulfilled to a greater extent through Jesus. Does that work? Can y'all stay with me as we do this? All right, you got to stay with me because there's a lot of verses that are about to get thrown at you. Let me give you an example, first of all, of why this is all important and why the New Testament writers understood the significance to this. The guys that wrote the Gospels understood this. Psalms is quoted 116 times in the New Testament. The majority of those are referencing Jesus. Almost all of them, actually, are referencing Jesus. Every single one of those Psalms that are referencing Jesus as a prophecy that's repeated in the New Testament All were written by guess who? And attributed to who? David. Well, that's like a ding, ding, ding moment, right? There's something important about that then, isn't there? Right? So we know that that's what's happening. The truth of the matter is, is that you can't get to Jesus and you can't get to who Jesus is without David and without the Old Testament and without understanding what Jesus is in reference to the sons of David. The first thing that we need to understand about Jesus as a son of David is this. Jesus is the greatest son of David. Jesus is the greatest son of David. Now, the sons of David are promised a lot, right? And none of it really happens because, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. None of them are good enough, all right? I mean, nobody, David's... Kids aren't ruling right now. His grandsons and great-grandsons and great-great-great-grandsons, they're not ruling on the throne. But they were promised a lot. And, And we know that one of David's sons was pretty impressive, wasn't he? A guy named Solomon, right? 
the, the wisest of them all, right? People from all over the world would come and visit him for his wisdom. But do you know what Matthew chapter 12, verse 42 tells us? I love this. This is what it says about Jesus. By the way, this is Jesus speaking. So anybody that says, I don't get this typology of Jesus ref- con- uh, back to David and the sons of David thing, well, it really doesn't matter too much if we get it or not because Jesus did. Because you know what Jesus says when the Pharisees asked him for a sign? This is what he says. This is good. He says, the queen of the south, he's talking to him. I don't need to give you a sign. He says, the Jonah thing, right? That's all you need, you know, three days then raise, right? And then he says this. He gives them another sign, which points back to guess who? A son of David. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says, one greater than the wisest of David's sons is standing right here and you're missing him. Right? So we see that Jesus is the greatest son of David. He's the greatest son of David, but he's also, and this is by the way what really makes him the greatest son of David, David, he is the most, and not only the most, but the only righteous son of David. Now again, I'm going to throw a bunch of scripture out. Please, you can go, you write it down, go back and read it. If I read every single one of you to you, we'll be here till 10 o'clock, okay? So if you want to be here till 10 o'clock, then we can do the Baptist thing and vote, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll veto it, okay? All right, so we ready? All right, good. Psalm, 131, or Psalm 132, 11 through 12 tells us that David's sons are going to sit on the throne forever. All right? But there's a caveat in there we miss a lot of times. And that caveat is their obedience and their righteousness. You got that? It's their obedience and it's their righteousness. See, God's plan has always been for the righteous son of David to sit on the throne forever. The problem is that the only, and it's not a problem, it's a solution for us today, the only righteous son of, God, of David is who? It's Jesus. Jesus is the only righteous son of David. God has always cared about righteousness and obedience. That's why we can't just like swipe our grace card, right? You know what I mean? Like we can't just get to heaven, pull out our grace credit card, be like, yay, I'm in Jesus, thank you. Part of that's because faith is always tied to action, by the way. Especially if you have, thanks Robbie Gallaty, an Eastern view of what faith means. Okay? So here's the picture. The picture is God cares about obedience and righteousness. He made a promise to David with a caveat of obedience and righteousness. And there's only one who can fulfill that. And it's Jesus. And it's Jesus. So for the Jew that might have said during this period of time, well, God made this promise to David... But, but his sons aren't on the throne. In their hope, they would have been hoping for, especially because the prophecy of the Son of Man, which we'll talk about next week, for this guy to come in who was the anointed one and to take over and to reign from a physical standpoint. The problem was is that God promised to reign forever. And the son of David could not reign forever if it was just from a physical earthly standpoint of Israel during that day. 
And so instead he had a better plan. And that was Jesus. Jeremiah 23, 5 tells us, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Jeremiah got it. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Psalm 110 verse 4 tells us that Jesus is the priest and king, or, or foreshadows the fact that Jesus is the priest and king in the order of Melchizedek. You know who that guy is, right? Go back to Genesis 14. He's the guy that blessed Abram. He was the king of Salem, but there was something unique about him. He was not just a king, but he was the priest of God Most High. Right? And then you go to Hebrews chapter 5, verse, or chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. And guess what you find in Hebrews? You find that guess who is a prophet, a priest, and a king? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Once again, pointing us back not to just the story of Abraham, but also the story of David. See how that works? There is only one who has ever been and ever will be righteous enough in the eyes of God, pure enough and holy enough to be priest and king forever. And that is Jesus. It's Jesus. Man, I so want to steal from thunder from the next couple weeks, but I'm just going to hold it. So that means you've got to come back or you're going to miss it. Jesus is the greatest son of David. He's the most righteous, the only righteous son of David. But he's also the suffering son of David. He's the suffering son of David. See, this is where people missed it when Jesus was around. They were looking for a conquering king. But there's a lot of David that Jesus even points out to us in his sufferings. that points to a suffering king. See, when we look to Jesus in his arrest and his beating and his torture on the cross and his death on the cross, we find that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 35, the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes. And that's really a reference to Psalm 22. And, and we find that Matthew chapter 27, verse 34, one verse before the previous. Jesus is given sour wine or vinegar to drink. And that's really a reference to Psalm 69. And then you find that in Matthew 27, 46, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus calls out and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Guess who else said those same words? David did in Psalm 22, verse 1. And even when Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's quoting David in Psalm chapter 31. If Jesus got it, it's good enough for me. Because if Jesus understood that he was the David that prophecy had been pointing to, Jesus rose from the dead three days later. I think I'm going to trust him. Jesus is the greatest son of David. He's the only righteous son of David. 
He's the suffering son of David. And I want you to understand for just a second that if this was just a bunch of stuff David had said and then Jesus trying to be smarter and wiser than everybody else, so him repeating some of it or doing some of it, somebody somewhere might be able to say, well, that guy's a clever guy, but he's just one of those false prophets. The problem is this, if that's what somebody wants to say. See, Jesus is also the prophesied son of David. It's not just what David says. It's not just in the Psalms. It's not just the promise that God gave to David and that God gave to Abraham. I mean, that ought to be good enough. But then guess what else happens? Just in case anybody misses it, you turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to verse 7, and these should sound familiar. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, and here's that word again, righteousness from then on and forevermore. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 2 of Isaiah. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Jesse is David's father, right? The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah says it. Jeremiah says it. Jeremiah 30, verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. God prophesies through Jeremiah. David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. 33, verse 14 through 15 of Jeremiah says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a, here it is again, righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Hosea, one of those prophets we don't read about much, says in verse 5 of chapter 3, Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Amos, chapter 9, verse 11, another one. Don't hear a lot of sermons on this guy, right? In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches and I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Micah 5.2, we already read. It's repeated right there in Matthew chapter 2. Zechariah 9, 9-10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Even when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it points us back to the fact that a king like David, but we know even greater than David, will be the one, the Messiah. And then I love this one because, man, this one is clear. Check this out. Typology thing don't make sense. How is Jesus another David but greater? Well, Ezekiel tells us. David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. And they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. 
By the way, this is cool because it says that, um, that they uh, shall have one shepherd. That's talking about the unification of the northern and southern kingdom. By the way, in Acts 1.8, what's it say? We should go be witnesses in where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, right? We read that and we're like, oh, that means the city, the region, then a little further, and then like everywhere, right? Man, even that points back to the promise to David and the kingdom. Do you know why Samaria is used there? It's not because it was a little further than Judea. No. It's the northern kingdom. Yes, yeah, so what's left of the northern kingdom? Jesus is telling people, listen, I've come to share the good news with the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, and all the Gentiles. That's what he's telling them. I mean, it's great that we use it about mission stuff. That's good, right? But that's not really what it means. What it means is Jesus came to unify all of Israel and be the good news not just to them, but to all the Gentiles. He came to fulfill the fact that he would reign not over just Israel, but over all the world. He came to fulfill what was promised to Abraham, that the, the, the whole world would be blessed through his seed. It all goes back to them now, doesn't it? Doesn't it make sense? It's like, woo, light goes off. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwell, and they shall dwell there, they their children and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. That's a good word, everlasting. And I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their, their God, and they shall be my people. The nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. David, my servant, shall be king over them. Jesus is the greatest son of David. He's the most righteous son of David. He's the suffering son of David. He's the prophesied son of David. And I'm so grateful that he is the only son of David that will reign and rule forever and over all the nations. Peter, when he is preaching his sermon at Pentecost, says that Jesus was already at the right hand of, at the, the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning. When he says that, guess what he quotes? David. Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. You read Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, and we're reminded how all of that is going to come to be. As it tells us there that every living creature will give Jesus blessing and honor and glory and power. See, you can't get to Jesus without going through the Old Testament. You can't get to Jesus without going through Abraham and David. You can't get to Jesus without understanding that the Bible from cover to cover. It's amazing. Thousands of years worth of work from cover to cover points us to one story, to one man, and what he's already done on the cross of Calvary and in his resurrection for you and me and what he will one day do when he comes back on the clouds. By the way, that's the transition to next week, the Son of Man. 
Don't miss it. So what does that mean for you and me? I mean, that's, that's good stuff, right? It makes you want to shout, doesn't it? Somebody did. Thank y'all. You know what it means for me? What it means for me is this. Is that as God chose the, the nation of Israel, as God chose the Jewish people, as God chose Abraham and his descendants, whatever phrase you want to use to explain that, he already had a plan in place that was going to give me an opportunity as a Gentile me an opportunity through his son Jesus the greater embodiment of David to be a part of his kingdom forever and ever and ever see the way he fulfilled the hope of the whole nation of Israel as the son of David is the same way that he can fulfill every hope that you have in your life so for me, what that says to me is this. Listen, Josh McDowell used to say this about Jesus. He still says it. He's still 40 years later talking to students all over the world. And he says it. I remember he, he did a, a thing I was at when I was a teenager. And then like a couple years ago, I took some teenagers somewhere, and he was there, and I was like, I remember that guy. So if he didn't wear skinny jeans then, and he did that time, I was like, oh, man, Right? Johnny Hunt wore skinny jeans, too. That was funny. Yeah. So, anyways, point being, Josh McDowell used to say this about Jesus. He used to say, you got to decide. Is he a liar, is he a lunatic, or is he Lord? Because he's got to be one of the three. Right? He's got to be one of the three. I mean, maybe CNN had it right when they said faith, fact, or forgery. Maybe that's, that's another good way to say you got to decide, right? I got to tell you, what my faith is based upon is the fact that my Jesus is Lord because I know that based upon his word from cover to cover, he fulfilled every prophecy that there ever was that he was the son of David. And next week, we'll see how he does that about the son of man. And all that points to him being who he said he was, the Son of God. You want to find Jesus? Start looking in his living word. And he'll become real to you each and every day. If you don't know him as Lord and Savior, that means you need to do that. And if you do, have new eyes when you study his word. Live out the hope that you have in him because of who he is. See, here's the way this works, church. When Jesus becomes real to us for who he is, he transforms us and he changes us. And that faith in us becomes real to everybody that we come in contact with. And that's how it can become real to them too. Because when it's real in your life and then you open your mouth and you begin to share words with them of how it's real and why it's real and what the difference is, guess what? They want a part of it. And that's what we're called to do. And why can't we do it? 
Well, there's really no reason not to because we serve a God who is King of kings and Lord of lords and he rules and reigns for all of eternity. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you are the son of David. Because, Lord, that gives me a pathway to the promises that you gave Abraham. And that's where we get our hope from. Lord, help us to live out that hope in our lives each and every day. Help us to find you. Not as words on a page. Not as a history lesson. Not as a Sunday school story. Not as a grace card. But as the real son of David, son of man, and son of God that you are. And the savior of the world that you are. So that you may transform our lives. So that you, through us, may impact those around us. Help us to be reminded that that is ultimately the only thing that transforms lives and transforms the world. Well, we love you. Thank you for being King of kings and Lord of lords and for ruling and reigning. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. We will see you back on Sunday, Sunday school and worship. Have a great rest of the week.